Please rise for the reading of God's Word from Acts chapter 21. We'll be reading verses 26 through 36. Hear now God's Word. Then Paul took the men, and the next day, having been purified with them, entered the temple to announce the expiration of the days of purification, at which time an offering should be made for each one of them. Now when the seven days were almost ended, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who teaches all men everywhere against the people, the law, uh, and this place. Uh, And furthermore, he also brought Greeks, excuse me, this is the man who teaches all men everywhere against the people, the law, and this place. And furthermore, he also brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city, whom they supposed that Paul had brought into the temple. And all the city was disturbed, and the people ran together, seized Paul, and dragged him out of the temple, and immediately the doors were shut. Now as they were seeking to kill him, news came to the commander of the garrison that all Jerusalem was in an uproar. He immediately took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them, And when they saw the commander and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the commander came near and took him and commanded him to be bound with two chains. And he asked who he was and what he had done. And some among the multitude cried one thing and some another. So when he could not ascertain the truth because of the tumult, he commanded him to be taken into the barracks. And when he reached the stairs, he had to be carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the mob. For the multitude of the people followed after, crying out, Away with him. And thus far the reading of God's word, and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. May you be seated. You will recall that in the first part of this chapter, Agabus the prophet had come down from Judea to Caesarea. And we read in Acts 21.11, When he had come to us, he took Paul's belt bound his own hands and feet, and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, So shall the Jews at Jerusalem bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. And, of course, you remember his friends, including Luke, uh, were trying to persuade Paul not to go to Jerusalem because of this prophecy, which is kind of ironic since it was a prophecy uh, that it was going to happen. But like Jesus, Paul set his face like a flint, to go to Jerusalem. I think it's helpful for us to get a sense of the political and cultural situation at this time in Jerusalem. Our own political and cultural situation gives us great concerns, but it also uh, causes us to think about the future with, with great concern and with certain expectations, worry a bit about what's going to happen next. And so at this time in Jerusalem, there were many factions and many leaders of those factions. Ten years later, from this point in time, will be the Roman-Jewish War. So that's we're leading up to that. That's how tense things are. Uh, so at this point, Jerusalem is a flashpoint and a place of tremendous turmoil. And so when we add the fact of the, that the celebration of Pentecost is taking place... So that Jews from many places have assembled in Jerusalem. Remember, this is about 25 years after the Pentecost that we read about in the first chapters of Acts, what we call, when we as a church celebrate Pentecost, that event. 
So we're 25 years out. Here's another Pentecost. Jews assemble all over uh, uh, to come to Jerusalem. We get some sense of how volatile the situation was for Paul and his companions. They're stepping into this cauldron. And so it's not going to be difficult to whip up a crowd and turn them into a mob. We see this kind of thing, of course, on a regular basis in our own day. It doesn't seem to take much. Sometimes there's actual agitators, people who are planning to do this, get a crowd, get them worked up. Next thing you know, we're burning and looting and somebody's getting beat up and uh, that kind of thing. Well, that's what we have here. So Paul is, has, remember, taken the recommendation of James and the other elders in the earlier part of this chapter uh, to per- to participate with four other men in a Nazarite vow in the temple as a demonstration to those Jewish Christians who had questioned Paul's commitment to Moses and to the law. And so he's doing this public thing where everybody can see that he's following these traditions, again, not contrary to anything the gospel teaches, but as a means of placating and demonstrating that he is not teaching the things that he's been accused of. And so we take up the story in verse 26. Then Paul took the men, these other four men who were undergoing this Nazarite vow purification, and the next day, having been purified with them, entered the temple to announce the expiration of the days of purification, at which time an offering should be made for each one of them. So he's completing this process. He's there in the temple And now is when the trouble begins. Uh, When the seven days were almost ended, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who teaches all men everywhere against the people, against the law, and against this place. And furthermore, he also brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. Remember, they, again, had seen earlier uh, Trophimus, the Ephesian, had been with him in the city, and they just assumed he had also been brought brought in with Paul. So Paul is the victim of rumors, of false information, and once these begin to circulate, it is impossible to recall them. These agitations started in the church, they spread to the temple, and they're soon, then soon outside agitators are going to add to this, those Jews that had come from Asia, probably Ephesus. Remember, there had been a riot there where Paul was almost killed. So there was in the church an impulse of jealousy, of envy, and a desire to bring Paul down. The Jews from Asia Minor who had rejected Paul at Ephesus uh, were likely, again, the ones that stirred up the crowd The crowd is then provoked by two allegations, basically. First, they misrepresented Paul's teaching. They said he teaches all men everywhere against the people, the law, and the place, that is, the temple. Ironically, Paul was at the temple undergoing purification so that he would not defile the temple. So the facts said otherwise. This charge was similar to what had been levied against Stephen where false witness, a false witness said, this man does not cease to speak blasphemous words against this holy place, the temple, and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs which Moses delivered to us. 
that was in Acts 6, neither of these cases are much different than their misunderstanding of Jesus, who spoke of himself as the fulfillment of the temple. Second, they accused him of bringing a Greek into the temple, and that was not true. But we have to understand it was a capital offense for a Gentile to enter the temple. And Romans would carry out the execution. That was the agreement the Romans had with the Jews. Paul had not done this, but you know how rumors work. They apparently had seen, again, Trophimus with Paul earlier and made a false assumption. Derek Thomas comments, A stone wall four and a half feet high separated the court of the Gentiles from the court of Israel. Notices in Greek and Latin, large notices, uh, forbidding Gentiles to cross over into the court of Israel were posted at regular intervals around the wall. Two such inscriptions have been found written in Greek, and they say this, No foreigner may enter within the barricade which surrounds the temple and enclosure. Anyone who is caught doing so will have himself to blame for his ensuing death. The Roman authorities had allowed the Jews to retain the death penalty for this offense, even if the offender should turn out to be a Roman, a Roman citizen, as as Paul is. And had this charge that he had brought Trophimus into the court of Israel been found true, then his Roman citizenship would not have saved Paul. So Luke reports that these two false accusations uh, were enough so that all the city was disturbed. And the people ran together, seized Paul, dragged him out of the temple, and immediately the doors were shut. So we see the pace at which all of this is unfolding very rapidly. It's just spinning out of control. It looks like Paul doesn't have long to live. And yet God in his providence enables the Roman soldiers to come to his rescue. The commander of the Roman garrison was next door in a building that was adjacent to the temple, and it was connected by a a staircase. This is where part of the trial of Jesus had taken place. This this was overseen by the Chiliarcho, not the centurion. The Chiliarcho was the man who was over a thousand men. He was over the centurions. And so he sees and he hears the commotion So he gets his centurions and his men to rush over to the temple, basically to stop the lynching of Paul. Verses 33 through 36, Then the commander came near and took him and commanded him to be bound with two chains, handcuffs, if you will, and asked him who he was and what he had done. And some among the multitude cried one thing and some another, so that he could not ascertain the truth because of the tumult. He commanded him to be taken into the barracks, and when he reached the stairs, he had to be carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the mob. For the multitude of the people followed after him, crying out, away with him. So the crowd could not get their story straight, because lies are always complicated. How many news reports have misrepresented events only for us to find out after after the mob carried out its destruction, that the first reports were false. This is reminiscent of the crowd, remember, crying out about Jesus, crucify him. Crucify him. 
Here we are in the same geographical location where Jesus was put on trial, where the crowd was crying out about Jesus 27 years later, and the mob is crying out, away with him, away with him. And we recall what the Lord said to Ananias in a vision. Remember, as Paul was on the road to Damascus, after Paul had seen Jesus, and now the Lord appears in a vision to Ananias because Paul is coming to him. And here's what the Lord said to Ananias. Go, for he, that is Saul, is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel, for I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. This is the last time Paul will ever be in the temple in Jerusalem. And the doors to its inner court have been shut. Very powerful image of that. From now to the end of Acts, Paul is in chains or in prison or both. Now, this is a, I told Pastor Bradley before we started, kind of a weird sermon. Um... I guess you could probably say that about all my sermons, right? Um, so this is one of those occasions, a short passage, because if I, the, other, the other option was to continue all the way through the end of the next chapter, where Paul is going to make his defense, and we will, Lord willing, do that next Sunday. But I'm going to use this as a pastor to branch off, chase a rabbit here for a moment, and make some application. I want to talk about the problem of rumors. So a lesson I want to draw regarding the danger and potential devastation of rumors. Rumors are stories or reports of uncertain or doubtful truth, including partial and half-truths. These are the things you've heard. These are the things you've read, perhaps on the Internet, perhaps somewhere else. But you have no first-hand knowledge of these things, which means that you don't have the whole story. Proverbs 18.17 tells us that the first to plead his case seems right until his neighbor comes and examines it. Oh, you mean there's another side to the story? There's details that matter? There's information that could change my whole... Pr- have you ever been there where you thought you knew something? And then you found out later, wait a minute, I had that complete, not not only did I have it wrong, I had it completely backwards. Has anyone ever done that to you? Said something about you? Reported something they thought you did that you didn't say or you didn't do? And you said, why didn't you come ask me? Why didn't you talk to me? Of course, you don't want such things done to you like that. There are plenty of things you've said or done that you don't want to have spread around to others, even if they're true. You want and expect what? You expect mercy. You expect grace. You expect kindness. You expect that from your fellow Christians. You want your reputation defended. So why would you sully someone else's, especially when you don't really know the whole story? Rumors get circulated through gossip. The Bible uses the word tail-bearing. 
A talebearer is a scandal monger. They like to let others know that they know things about other people. And they whisper. They have their ear to the ground. They've Googled it. They've done a background check. This is a form of power over other people. And when you whisper about others at your house or with your friends, then you have started a brush fire that may turn into a firestorm. Westminster Larger Catechism does a great job of fleshing out many ideas, in this case, under the Ninth Commandment. What is the Ninth Commandment? The Ninth Commandment is, Thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. You say, oh, well, I'm not bearing false witness. I'm just telling what I know. Oh, really? Do you really know it? Do you have the whole truth? Do you really know the whole picture? Question 144, what are the duties required in the Ninth Commandment? The duties required in the Ninth Commandment are the preserving and promoting of truth between man and man and the good name of our neighbor as well as our own, appearing and standing for the truth and from the heart, sincerely, freely, clearly, and fully, speaking the truth and only the truth in matters of judgment and justice and in rejoicing in their good name, sorrowing for and covering of their infirmities, freely acknowledging of their gifts and graces, defending their innocency, a ready receiving of a good report, an unwillingness to admit an evil report concerning them, discouraging talebearers, flatterers, and slanderers, love and care of our own good name and defending it when it when need requires keeping of lawful promises study and practicing of whatsoever things are true honest lovely and of good report wow what are the sins forbidden in the ninth commandment i've slightly abridged this for length the sins forbidden in the ninth commandment are speaking untruth Lying, slandering, backbiting, detracting, tail-bearing, whispering, scoffing, reviling, rash, harsh, and partial in censuring, misconstruing intentions, unnecessary, unnecessary discovering of infirmities, raising false rumors, receiving and countenancing evil reports, and stopping our ears against just defense evil suspicion, envying or grieving at the deserved credit of any, endeavoring or desiring to impair it, rejoicing in their disgrace and infamy, scornful contempt, fond admiration, breach of lawful promises, neglecting such things as are of good report and practicing or not avoiding ourselves or not hindering what we can in others such things as procure an ill name. In other words, I'm not going to listen to rumors and gossip. With rumors, wells are poisoned, along with the good opinions that you once had of someone, all because you listened to an evil report. And so you've now been, you, as a receiver of that, have now been tarnished and your soul has been dented. All because someone shared something with you in love or out of concern 
and that other person wasn't there to say anything in response. Paul was nearly killed because of rumors and talebearers. The old saying, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me, is a lie. When you hear or read something about someone else, you should ask yourself several questions. Why are they telling me this? Can I help? Is this, are they telling me because they think I can fix this or do something about it? Do they really know what they're talking about? Do they have firsthand knowledge? Or is this hearsay? Is this person guilty of similar things in their lives? They're telling me about somebody else. What about them? Is the reporter of the information trying to help or hurt? Scripture warns of this repeatedly. Let me just read a few short passages, mostly from the Proverbs. I'll start with Exodus 23.1, which is very explicit. You shall not circulate a false report. Do not put your hand with the wicked to be an unrighteous witness. You say, well, I thought it was true. No, you got to know it's true. You can't just think it's true. You can't just heard it from somewhere else and assume it to be true. In fact, you have an obligation to presume the innocence of someone until you know otherwise. And, that's a, and the Bible has a pretty high standard for what knowing that is. I like to ask, is it any of your business to start with? Leviticus 19, 15-16 says, In righteousness you shall judge your neighbor. You shall not go about as a talebearer among your people, nor shall you take a stand against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. The rest here are from Proverbs. Proverbs 11:13. A talebearer reveals secrets, but he who is a, a faithful spirit conceals a matter. You don't have to tell everything you know. You sure don't have to tell everything you hear. Proverbs 17:9. He who covers a transgression seeks love, but he who repeats a matter separates friends. Proverbs 18:8. The words of a talebearer are like tasty trifles. They go down into the inmost body. Proverbs 20:19. He who goes about as a talebearer reveals secrets. Therefore, do not associate with one who flatters with his lips. You see, it's interesting. He talks about talebearing and flattery, but see, I can even be telling you something negative about someone else, but I'm actually flattering you because I think you need to know this. I'm making you feel. You can feel as important as I feel because now you know this too. Now you have power. Proverbs 26, 20 through 22. Where uh, there is no wood, the fire goes out. And where there is no talebearer, strife ceases. As charcoal is to burning coals and wood to fire, so is a contentious man to kindle strife. The words of a talebearer are like tasty trifles. You already read that. They go down to the inmost body. Proverbs 16, 28. A perverse man sows strife, and a whisperer separates the best of friends. Pastor Wilson wrote this, Whenever a crop of strife arises, we know from the word of God that someone has been farming. We know also from this passage that one of the techniques used in this sowing is that of destructive whispering. 
The one who sows discord takes someone aside feigning concern or something else very spiritual. No one ever says, hello, I'm an, I am an out-of-control gossip and I have come to destroy all your friendships. But if we heed the scriptures at this point, we see that the separation of friends is commonly associated with the surrounding talk. Someone has aptly said that it takes two friends to wound you. One to say something unkind and another one to get the word out right away. Chrysostom, church father, says, Henceforward, let us set a door and a bolt before the mouth. For innumerable evils have arisen from tattling. Families have been ruined. Friendships torn asunder. Innumerable other miseries have happened. Busy not yourself, O man, about the affairs of your neighbor. Next, Chrysostom, knowing that the portal for rumors is flung wide open through talkativeness, gives some guidance for those who find that they must talk. He said this, but you are talkative and have a weakness. Talk of your own faults to God. Thus the weakness will no longer be a weakness, but an advantage. Talk of your own faults to your friends, those who are thorough friends and righteous men, and in whom you have confidence, so that they may pray for your sins. And if you speak of the sins of others, you are in no way profited, neither have you gained anything, but you have ruined yourself. I preached a sermon on gossip 30 years ago, and that Sunday afternoon, I had five different people ask me if I had preached that sermon to them. I actually did have one of them in mind as I prepared the sermon. The other four just felt the scattershot. The Holy Spirit had them in mind. And if you're wondering, is Pastor Booth talking about me? The answer is, if you think I am, then I am. So, to tie this back into Acts 21. Thank you for letting me make that detour. And the advantage is, this is going to be a very short sermon today. Um, Rumors almost killed Paul. False reports misinformation, half-truths, and it does the same thing wherever it goes. And it happens in the church. It happens outside the church. It happens everywhere. We need to be on guard. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful that you have shown us that even in the face of great danger, you are with your people. You bring us through the fiery furnace. Even when rumors fly and injustice seems to prevail, you can override what others intend for evil, and you can bring about good. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Reflect for a moment on your many and varied sins. You can't remember them all, much less see all the damage that they have done to you and to others. I think that would probably be overwhelming. 
Think of the gossip, rumors, and slanders you received or repeated, some of which are still traveling today. They cannot be recalled, and thankful, but thankfully they can be forgiven in Christ. Perhaps some who were in the temple that day when Paul was assaulted, arrested, and almost killed, some who shouted and called for him to be taken away, perhaps later some of them believed the gospel and had those very, those very sins washed away. This is the good news. Paul would write in Romans 3, But now the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God, through faith in Jesus Christ, to all, to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by His blood through faith to demonstrate His righteousness because in His forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time His righteousness that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Westminster Larger Catechism, question 70. What is justification? Justification, that is, you're being declared not just innocent, but but being declared righteous. That's a different level altogether. Justification is an act of God's free grace to sinners in which he pardons all their sins, accepts and accounts their persons righteous in his sight, not for anything wrought in them or done by them, but only for the perfect obedience and full satisfaction of Christ by God imputed to them and received by faith alone. This is the good news. This is the gospel. And we come to the Lord's table now to remember so great a salvation. Father, indeed, we praise you. We thank you. You are so good to us. Help us, Lord, to see and to perceive all the goodness that surrounds us, even in a world of sin and brokenness and pain and suffering. We have people that love us, people that uh, you've put around us, because of the work of Christ, that we're marching together to Zion, to the heavenly glories that are ahead. Father, teach us this week, keep us safe, and use us to advance your kingdom. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen.